Good morning and welcome to America This Week with John Gersma and Libby Rodney. Libby, how are you? I'm great. I'm I'm ready for the the big weekend, the three day. Got plans? <laughs> what, what what are you gonna do? What are you guys gonna do? You got Sienna and Matisse. Are they gonna? Um, we are having a unicorn party? birthday party in the park. If it and then if it rains, we're doing absolutely nothing and watching Encanto for the 10,000th time, you know, it's just <laughs> the life of parents today. Oh, I miss those movies. I got to watch it, go back and watch a few of the old ones for, for <laughs> recollection. Is it pretty good? I mean, it's amazing. I honestly would listen to that music without them. So it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> All right. That's a good movie tip listener. Okay. Uh, so we're in wave 117, which means 117 straight weeks since COVID began. And what we did, Libby and I, is sort of use this time every week to sort of take the pulse of America. And obviously not just on the pandemic, but on sort of everything and sort of culture and trends. So we've got four stories from some recent data that we're going to talk about uh, in the next half hour. The first one is the idea that companies aren't Switzerland, they are the UN. And I'll hold that uh, explanation until we kind of get into the data, but this is going to touch on some of the latest new data that we released this week from the Axios Harris Poll 100. And Libby, you've got an interesting second story. Yeah, and um, I think that the theme here is kind of transparency in the corporate structure. So CEOs aren't executives. Um, they're really the brands themselves. And we're seeing a huge interest in accountability of the CEOs and they kind of become the brands in that that quest for accountability. Interesting. And also on our third story, you know, you and I were pulling together data for the Milken Institute where we found that 76% of CEOs were concerned about supply chain uh, impacting their current business. Uh, that's the third topic, right? Yeah, supply chains aren't just logistics, they're really trust chains. And we kind of dive into how consumers are reacting to supply chain shortage and what does that look like and what are the expectations moving forward for companies. Awesome. And then we're going to finish it up with uh, a story called Crypto Isn't Just for Bros. Can't wait. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Good. So uh, as we usually start, we talk about the stats of the week. Um, number one, we see that 89% uh, of Americans, almost nine out of 10, the most important thing to them that's on their minds is the economy, inflation, and jobs. Clearly, that's the, the top concern in America. But tragically, also, you know, with the events in, in Uvalde um, and then Buffalo two weeks prior to that, we now have 84% of Americans who are, who are particularly worried about random acts of violence in the country. That's also followed by 81% uh, who continue to be uh, concerned about uh, the ongoing um, Russian uh, war with Ukraine. What is uh, surprising, or at least hopeful, is that two-thirds of Americans are concerned about COVID, and that continues to, to tick down, which is, uh, which is good news. But of course, in a world of stacked crises, uh, we now have a new thing. 58% <laughs> of Americans are familiar and concerned about monkeypox. Libby. What the heck, monkeypox? I mean, come on. Like, can we just stop the madness with this? I mean, but I mean, look, all of it, the crass, the, the stacked crises, they all kind of happen because all of these things are interconnected, right? And so mm. these viruses, these pandemics, they will kind of continue until we figure out the fundamental elements that are, um, that we can get to a more sustainable 
healthcare system, more sustainable um, crisis or climate control, et cetera. So kind of makes sense that we just keep stacking them until we kind of really figure out the, the foundational elements of them all. No, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And let's, let's talk about one set of crises that have kind of gone into the C-suite, which is our first story. So we have this um, headline that we say companies aren't Switzerland, they are the UN. And Libby, I'm going to have you explain that in just a second. But this is uh, data from our, our brand new Axios Harris Poll 100 uh, list of corporate uh, reputation a survey that we released this week. It's a really robust survey, over 33,000 Americans uh, talking about their views on companies. And I think what's interesting about it is it's not what elites think, it's what people on Main Street think in terms of company reputation. And there were a couple of interesting things in there um, that we were kind of surprised. Uh, we're able to sort of take the top performing overall companies across all America, but we can also cut it by different demos. And so you and I did an interesting thing. We sort of uh, pulled apart who are the top uh, most reputable companies by political party. And when you look at the GOP, number one is Chick-fil-A. Then it's HEB Grocery, which is uh, HEB's out of Austin, uh, a real popular uh, sort of south uh, Southwest Texas uh, in Texas uh, uh, company, grocer. Then you had Hobby Lobby at number three, um, Tesla at number four, Trader Joe's at number five, and then Libby, number six, Patagonia. <laughs> so Patagonia, number six with GOP. And then with Democrats, uh, Patagonia was number five. So we found potentially one thing in America that Democrats and Republicans can agree on, which is, which is Patagonia. What do you make out of that? I mean, I think so. This is kind of our um, our headline, right? That you you can't be Switzerland; you have to be um, the UN. And I think what Patagonia is doing is they're saying, "Here are long term pillars. Here are long term values. We're gonna be this way. This is who we are. This is how we show up." I mean, Patagonia fights against the GOP on certain issues and they take a really almost hostile stance in some ways, but they also are creating a, a vision for the world that they want to live in, believe in mm. and practice in in 10 years from now, 20 years from now. So I think people, what, what you're seeing is people really respect values. They respect when you come to the table as you are and you stay there and you stay kind of firm to your ground and they, they can respect that. And they, they kind of know how those brands play out. Um, so I think that's where you're seeing that corporate reputation respect being driven from. That's super interesting. You, you know, historically in, in this survey, um, both Patagonia and Chick-fil-A have been sort of top 10 uh, companies. And I think your point is really interesting. And, you, know, you and I were joking about this before the show that imagine you took Chick-fil-A and uh, Patagonia and you had a corporate <laughs> picnic together. <laughs> but but you make a really interesting point, right? Which is like, there might be like begrudging respect. Yeah. And I, I just, I honestly think about it as, you know, it's like that uncle at your, <laughs> at your Thanksgiving dinner table who you, you do not agree with, um, but you love and you respect him because he's got his points of views and, and not all of them that you agree with, but they, they stay consistent. Right. And they're like, this is why I believe in it. And they have kind of a point of view and it's not 
based on alternative facts. It's based on kind of their something that really grounds them. And I think people kind of can respect that. It's the wishy-washiness that they can't really respect or the neutrality that they don't respect anymore. Well, that is exactly true. And the other thing that we found in, in the data this year that was startling was the drop in Disney's uh, corporate reputation ranking. So they were 37th last year. Um, and this year, they're 65th. They were the top decliner uh, in our top 100. And um, Twitter, interestingly, was third. But, you know, a, a lot of what I think you're saying, I really agree with, which is that you, you think about what happened there, you had Disney sort of not really addressing the um, so-called don't say gay bill and then coming out and then sort of like, where do they stand, right? In terms of this about face. Yeah, I mean, I just, there's um, something that we've been talking about is that it's so risky not to come out and, and say something like what you don't say. Um, we've heard from consumers directly in, in groups and things like that is, is as important as what you say. So they watch you being on the sidelines. And so you really have to have, um, you know, a game plan to how to react to these things. Uh, absolutely. And I think companies need to understand their leaders in society, whether they want to or not. We found that in our Milken data where 68% of, of this is the American data uh, section said that they believe that businesses should be more involved in solving social issues and um, uh, near equal numbers said they trusted them more than, than the government uh, to sort them out. So that's really interesting. The last thing I just want to touch on here was we also pulled out a, a chart that looked at sort of the top employer brand attributes. So we asked this question, you know, do people believe this looks like a good company to work for? And that was super interesting as well. You saw this high correlation between rankings where Trader Joe's, IBM, Patagonia, Wegmans, Hershey, and Honda sort of led the pack. And all these were top 10 overall reputation companies. And that list I just mentioned is also the top companies that are best to work for. So that might be a nice segue, Libby, to get into this second sort of story around CEOs, because it seems like there, there is a culture that's important that people want to believe that these companies are guided by values and that their employees believe in what's happening as well. So take us through that data. Yeah. And I think um, to just to draw on that, it, the, the whole theme of kind of this show today is, is about that transparency. You'll see it in how you act as a brand, what the CEO says, what your supply chain looks like, fair values for workers. Like it kind of just, it's through and through. Um, but the second story is about, CEOs aren't executives, they're brands. And what we mean by that is Americans believe CEOs impact the reputation of their company um, and the company's ethical standards. They think those are the leading roles of the CEO over even financial success of the company. So it it's kind of like ethics over finances. And that is a that's a fundamental shift as the CEO being, you know, a visionary to the stakeholders and, and, and being able to mold and push the company from a financial point of view or an operations point of view to actually being the brand itself. Hmm. Um, the, and what we like to say too, is the ultimate influencer is the CEOs, like forget social media, like really focus on, on your CEOs. 57% of millennials say a CEO actions influence their decisions to buy or purchase from your brand. 
which is just um, 42% of the general population. Hmm. And one third will stop buying from you because of a CEO. Um, and I think that stop buying is really interesting because that's just a third you're going to lose um, that you might not even know about it, but your CEO kind of missteps or doesn't take the action. I think, I think there's two ways about it, right? They, they misstep and they say the wrong thing, or they're simply not taking action. And then you're not seen as a credible player who is, you know, out there living your, your brand values, et cetera. Um, so that I think is really interesting. Um, John, hmm. do you want to talk about some of the Axios stuff here on the generational divide on, on CEO speaking out? Yeah, sure. I mean, I just think that's really interesting that you've got a lot of potential. And this is stated uh, data, not behavioral, but you tend to see consumers um, sort of coming down and connecting that point you just raised about reputation and values with with sort of brands. And I think we were talking about this yesterday at, uh, at the Digital Ascendant conference we spoke at, which, you know, is that whether you like it or not, like, brand marketing and corporate reputation in the eyes of young people and, and largely people of color, they're like the same thing, right? They are two different, sort of two different divisions. And we see that in the data in our new Axis Harris poll, 68% of millennials and 66% of Gen Z, they actually believe a CEO being more active and expressing their own political views is good for the company. And those numbers are at 20 point different than Americans uh, in general, the general pop at 46%. And so at the lowest level are 40% of boomers. And that's a big difference. The, the boomers and to a lesser extent, Gen X at 44%, they're a little bit more about like, it's not a good thing to sort of speak out, but young people are saying, yeah, it is. And so are our BIPOC, you know, black mm -hmm. Americans at 62%. Hispanic Americans at 69% uh, are more likely than uh, the, the pool of white Americans in America at 43%. So again, that 20 point kind of swing based on sort of color in America and age. So Libby, I mean, I'm just curious what you, what you think about that. If you're a CEO yeah. looking at this data, you know, where do you sort of take it? Well, I, I think it's so interesting, especially when you look at the generational divide in that. I think there's been this coming up of, you know, boomers and Gen Xers as, you know, it's polite not to talk politics at the mm. business table. And what you're saying and what you're seeing with younger generations, millennials and Gen Zers who are inherently more people of color, right? Gen Z is 49% people of color. Uh, millennials are 42 people, 42% people of color. They're saying, hey, forget politeness. Like we need real change. We need to really understand where you stand on these issues. We've talked about in our past shows how optimism isn't about this, this beautiful blue sky, but it's really about the action we need to take today. It's about getting uncomfortable so that we can make change. So I, th I think that's probably where it's coming from, this, this, this need for you need to understand where the CEOs actually stand on these issues to, in order to trust the brand, in order to like know that this is not just a polished message because we've seen this age of transparency happen for a while now, but it just continues to get deeper and deeper into the organizational structure, whether that's CEOs or supply chains. So you've hit on something really important here because we just talked a couple of minutes ago about the most reputable companies are also the companies that look like they're good places to work for. And there's a real interesting da data point in, in this new Harris data 
that I thought I thought I'd kind of maybe surface here, which is that four out of ten Americans believe that CEOs should listen to their customers the most, followed by employees at twenty eight percent, and you know shareholders at seventeen percent. So I think Peter Drucker would be losing his mind right now, right? This is not about <laughs> shareholder value, but this is sort of the and these aren't even skewed to look at at age and 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 race. So you have a shifting that is happening in America that seems to be really consumer centric to your point, but also employee centric. So how do you kind of mm-hmm. square that as a CEO? Who are you supposed to listen to? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We do a lot of work in this space and it you really do have to listen to all the stakeholders and mm-hmm. and work more on triangulating the common things that people align with and, and the things where you're going to get real um, polarization or, um, you know, even hostility, right, if you go after certain issues. So it's not about going after safe issues, but it's like in your wheelhouse, in your, in your brand, what is authentic that you should be standing for? What are the share, like consumers, um, employees, and shareholders that align with that? And almost thinking about that, John, to your point, as maybe putting different percentages of importance on that and how that will ultimately impact your business in the next 10 years. Because you can get shareholders on board if your consumers are buying, if your consumers are showing up. Your mm. shareholders will also be your your enemy if you don't have a strong brand in 10 years and if you've created a certain amount of disloyalty. So I think it's it's a it's a challenging point for the CEO, but it's it's about thinking and strategically mapping kind of into the long term to to facilitate that. Well, and to your point, I, I think you you talked to me before the show about what's going on at Glossier. That's a perfect example, right? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, Glossier is a brand that we've been covering for years just in terms of trends. It's Emily Weiss's kind of baby. Um, mm-hmm. She created it was from a blog into the gloss. But recently in the last day or two, she stepped down. Um, because she didn't, there was not a, a great work culture at Glossier. It was considered um, toxic. There were raised allegations of racism. Um, and there, that was all shared on an Instagram account called Out of the Gloss. Um, yes. And it was boycotted. So all of a sudden, this very, you know, amazing brand was turned on its head by the employees. So every brand really has to consider that because what we're seeing also on the reverse side of of creating trust is the number one way to create trust is to treat your employees well. And that's what I, not with mm-hmm. trust with the consumer or employees, but trust with consumers. Consumers want like these workplaces that treat and, and create fairness for their employees. And so you can't kind of do one without the other. You can't grow um, despite the way that you treat employees, you have to you have to be more holistic about how you think about that, how you think about equity from the beginning. So again, mm. I think in that f- framework, it's really about getting um, long term and strategic, and then thinking short term. How do you how do you build that? How do you build towards that that model and that plan? Interesting. Uh, speaking of trust, you've got a, a third story that sort of pivots and talks a little bit about what's happening with uh, the supply chain <laughs> crisis in America. But there's some interesting yeah. parallels here, I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, another one is supply chains. Like when we talk to consumers, they've never, ever been interested in supply chains. Like if we brought up supply chains yeah. five years ago, people would say, what? Why are you talking to me about this? But um, the, <laughs> the shift here is supply chains aren't just logistics. They're trust chains. And 
being under so much pressure, we're seeing that most Americans, it's kind of a minor inconvenience, but millennials say the issues are unacceptable. So in general, 59% of Americans say that supply chain disruptions are understandable given the pandemic. Um, but 41% and over half of millennials say when they purchase a product or service from the brand, they expect the brand to honor their commitment and such disruptions are unacceptable. So millennials are drawing more of a line there. Um, and, you know, what are they not finding, right? Almost half haven't been able to find items in stores that they usually find easily. And over a third hmm. have had their online purchases been delayed or canceled completely. Um, and then when you look at just the news stories, right? I think the biggest one top of mind is the baby formula shortage. Um, near nationwide, 43% of baby formula products are out of stock right now. That's incredible. And you, we also have in the data, 80% of Americans are aware of labor shortages. Um, so I, I listened to you to kind of talk about this. My, my one sort of observation is, you know, you've, you've talked a lot about over the last five years leading up into the pandemic is sort of the rise of, of sort of frictionless shopping and, and Uber convenience. And in fact, I think in the Axis Harris poll uh, reputation during the pandemic, we had uh, Clorox number one, but all the logistics companies were way at the top because they mm -hmm. were projects, our products to our, our shelves. And now this feels like it's like we took a bottle away from a baby, right? Isn't that kind of the case? Is that why millennials are so freaked out? I think so. I think they're just such, they're under so much pressure to, to be managing all these sources of convenience. And so mm. when you take away this idea that you can um, have these things at your disposal and, and they're, they're removed, it just adds a lot of pressure onto your, onto your life. And, and, you know, and like things like baby formula shortage, they're, they're a necessity, right? Parents are really suffering right now. Um, yeah. But, you know, mm. there's, there's, there's new ways in, into thinking about how do you build um, the trust and make sure that that never happens when it comes to a necessity. Do you think there's anything else about uh, ways in which, you know, trust chains could sort of be built into brand? I mean, is there a, an opportunity to drive premium pricing or to drive greater loyalty? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Um, sorry, John, my internet cut out, but um, did you talk about the... The, the numbers around switching or willing to pay more yet? Oh, no, that, that'd be great to hit on. Okay, yeah, uh, apologies to everyone. Um, Americans are ready to switch um, when it comes to supply chain. So, you know, the thing that we always get asked is like, how do you actually get consumers to switch? Well, supply chain is actually becoming an opportunity for switchers. So 68% of Americans and 81% of millennials um, who have experienced supply chain problems would switch to another competitor after experiencing anything from service delays to shipping cancellations or poor customer service. And um, young Americans under 40, so that's Gen Zers and millennials, would actually be willing to pay a higher price for service guarantees. So when you think about that, what are those, you know, when Kia came out with their guarantee you know, 15 years ago, that was kind of a, Mm. Um, a signature move in the category. I think it's a real opportune moment for brands to think about what's a signature move that they can create in this supply chain fiasco that will give people that trust and, and create that guarantee. And even you can charge a premium for it. So it's not like 
people expect it without paying more, but um, if they do pay more, you better be able to deliver on it, you know? Two things about that that are super interesting. Another set of dramatic falling companies this year were companies that were involved in the last mile. So we saw we saw Grubhub, um, we saw you know DoorDash, um, a, a number of other interesting sort of uh, big lots, Dollar Tree. Anyone who is sort of responsible for products on shelves um, kind of dropped in reputation and. So I, I think when you go back to the supply chain issue, what's interesting here is it's been talked about, we're going to shift away from just in time to sort of just in case. And I think what's interesting, what you're talking about is that, you know, if you had localized supply chains, if you had guaranteed product delivery, it's almost like trust becomes a really sort of key premium brand differentiator. Yeah, absolutely. And um, some news that just broke this week is that Walmart is going to roll out drone delivery um, to 4 million U.S. households. So I think they're kind of trying to figure out what that yeah. last mile um, point of the supply chain is. Um, and right now, you know, if you you look into the analyst reports, they say it's a, you know, crawl, walk, run strategy. Like we're very much at the crawling phases. It's it's kind of hard to get to, but, you know, they're charging $3.99 and it's got a weight limit of $10 and it will, sh- it will fly to your house. And you have to think about this, the delivery to rural America and places that where it really makes sense like that, that could be a game changer in the future. So um, I think Walmart's trying to figure out that that supply chain, that delivery system to build the trust, to build relevancy in the future. And it's an interesting one to watch. Mm, Absolutely. So speaking of our last, uh, uh, speaking of trust, our last story is about crypto and obviously crypto has taken a hit over the past uh, uh, 10 days. I don't have to, um, break that news to, to anyone. But I think what's interesting in this new Harris data is really what was originally and continues to be driving the sort of attachment and sort of championship of, of crypto. And it's potentially maybe not who you think. And I think our, our surface observation is this is just a lot of uh, white millennial men. And in fact, there's a really interesting uh, sort of subset of Americans uh, for whom crypto is a, is a really attractive proposition. Uh, what we found in in our data, in fact, right, Libby, is that you know crypto mm-hmm. um, DAOs, NFTs, they're actually agents of equity. Um, what was really interesting is that you had sort of more BIPOC, LGBTQIA plus Americans that were investing uh, in cryptocurrencies. So while the general population was at about 27%. Um, LGBTQIA+, for example, was at 40%. So that's 13 points higher in terms of investing in cryptos against stated uh, data. And then while 24% of white Americans said they were investing in crypto, uh, it was 46% of Hispanic Americans and 40% of Black Americans. And we asked this question a couple of different ways. We, you know, we asked, you know, do you believe that the crypto is a legitimate form of payment? Only 50% of white Americans uh, believe that, you know, uh, uh, it's half, it's significant, but 66% uh, of Hispanic Americans and 68% of black Americans and 63% of LGBTQIA. So it kind of continues that theme, but I mean, Libby, what do you sort of take away from why this dynamic might be happening uh, with people of color and uh, with the LGBTQ community? Yeah, um, well, I think it, it 
it goes to the overall principles of Web3 going from a, the internet um, and the financial systems being a very centralized you know, opportunity. They're the ones who are giving you a loan. They're the ones who are, are doing something. And people of color, um, women, LGBTQIA, they've been um, disenfranchised from the system for years. And so when, you know, uh, there's a great piece in the Boston Globe um, written by this woman, Clev Messor, who says, you know, we've been excluded from loans and investment opportunities, including mortgages and high growth assets that hmm. our white contemporaries use to build wealth. So when you think about this evolution and next phase of of the internet and what that could entail and the wealth building opportunities that could entail. I think a lot of people of, of color from these audiences, and you can read about it, listen to podcasts, they're saying, I, I want to be a part of that. And I want to be the people who figure out how to build that next phase of wealth in a more decentralized operating system. This is going to be the way that we can kind of really do it um, for our generation and the generations to come. That's really interesting. And that really tracks with our last piece of data, which is a brand new full, uh, poll that we brought out uh, this week with Forbes and Forbes Culture, which is a, a think tank, um, which looks at sort of all different uh, types of, of issues uh, in and around society. And one of the things that, that we found was that seven out of 10 Black Americans, Libby, feel stressed by discrimination and wealth, wealth building. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about. So it feels like, you know, these financial instruments are more inclusive. They're routing around those traditional institutional systemic barriers, whether it's, you know, a mortgage application, lending, student loans. It just seems like this is a more sort of frictionless way to, to sort of uh, to build wealth in a decentralized manner. Yeah. And I, I think the way for skeptics who are listening in to think about it is it's not tomorrow building wealth. It's like it's over the next decade. It's over the mm. next two decades. Um, and I think people are actively creating communities around that. They're, they're, like, like there's a Black Women um, Blockchain Council. And there's a lot of people who are kind of getting together to figure these out to say, hey, when this next wave of wealth hits, because we're going into this next wave of internet, we want to be a part of it and we want to be an equity-based player in it. And I think that is kind of the most fascinating thing to watch um, and that people should really be paying attention to. Great thoughts. Well, let's let's leave it there. We hit our half hour. Uh, we want to thank everybody for listening in. Um, as usual, we can hit America this week on LinkedIn. We also... Uh, can pick up this podcast and in, in various places, right? On Spotify and on Apple. Yeah, we just launched and and would love any following, any ideas, anything. Um, but we launched on Apple and on Spotify and it's America This Week from the Harris Poll. And if you're having trouble searching for it as I was, and we'll figure that out, just make sure to put the Harris Poll in there and everything will sort itself out. <laughs> We're better at research than we are SEO. Um, yes. <laughs> awesome. Libby, have a great uh, Memorial Day weekend. And for everybody listening, uh, do that as well. Be well, everybody. Thanks, John. You too. Bye. Bye.